Welcome to the Working Dog Depot podcast with your hosts, Rich Harden and Howard Young. All right. Howard Young, how are you, my friend? Very well. How about you? Doing well. Doing well. Very been good. A, been a busy week. We just opened our second location here in Louisville. And so getting that building up and running and all the things that go with, you know, expanding your business, take its toe. So it's been a long week. We opened uh, Monday. So at the new place. Very good. good. Well, tonight is national night out. So it's kind of a big deal with law enforcement agencies and kind of up, going uptown and allowing folks to come by to kind of see the, the, the latest toys that that agencies are using and shake hands and greet uh, the, do- the dog and pony show. The dog and pony show. Yep. All right. All right. Very cool. Well, sounds like everybody's well. Dog team's doing well. They are. They're doing well. Well, tonight I've got a, an old friend, a blast in the past from uh, our Virginia Beach days and good dog guy. Been around for a while. Got an interesting background, an interesting story, but we'll we'll let him get into that on the podcast. So without further ado, let's welcome uh, my friend Tim Slattery. Brother, good to see you. Howard, you're looking good. Good to see you. All right. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate you taking your time out of your evening to, to sit down with us. Absolutely, man. Well, for our listeners, you know, all my wife and Howard's wife that listen, <laughs> we'll uh, just give us a little bit of background, man. Uh, where, where are you from? What, what do you do now? And Well, technically, if you want to, if you want to, pinpoint where I'm from, I'm going to call Texas my from place because I moved to Texas back in 84 and uh, never went back from upstate New York, never went back. And uh, so Texas is my go-to place. Uh, My wife and I are living in Florida now outside of Orlando, between Orlando and Tampa. But that's my resident basis from a uh, from what I've been doing perspective is uh, I kind of I kind of geared it down. I uh, was hitting the ground running pretty hard back in. Uh, well, actually, uh, I ran it pretty hard for a long time. But in 2012 is when I uh, after we left or after I left the uh, gig over at Little Creek, I went to work for the Department of State and uh, did a couple deployments with the Department of State canine relative. And then I jumped ship and went to work for Triple Canopy, which is the old Blackwater group. And I did almost two years in the jungle, Southeast Asia, with Triple Canopy, which was all canine related. So in the, in the course of from 2012 to 2015, I was running and gunning with the canines overseas, pretty much. Okay. All right. So well, that that was a, that's a decent jump for you from because. Uh, if I remember correctly, you were in the uh, the bird dog world, right? Labs. Yeah, I started my career, you know, a long time ago. I was an avid hunter, and I got tired of picking up my own dove birds in Texas. So I, I hooked up with this trainer down in South Dallas, Scott, and uh, he kind of befriended me. I befriended him. I bought a dog off him, which was my first gun dog named Lizzie. And uh, he put me through the paces. She was a basically uh, like a KMPV kind of dog, but in a gun dog perspective. And I started training with him on a daily basis, legging her up and learning how to run a gun dog under a gun. That evolved over the years to me 
starting my own professional training business, canine business. I mean, it just went, you know, I was like head over heels and I jumped into it a hundred percent, got a kennel, started training dogs, started traveling this, the hunt test circuit around the country. I would leave in May, about May 3rd of every year. And I'd head up the East coast and uh, run the, what's called the Northeast circuit. Or I'd go straight up the gut and go to South Dakota, North Dakota, all up through there and run the uh, competitive AKC circuit with the hunt dogs. And that lasted for dead gone well from 1990, 91 till 2010, 2011. That's a big run. Yeah. That's a lot of time on the road. Excuse me. It was a fun run. A lot of experiences, a lot of friends made. It was a good time. A lot of memories. Nice. So from from the gun dog world, uh, and that I guess that leap did that happen around two thousand eleven ish? Yes. Okay. Yeah. When uh, I met uh, Mr. Jeff, there's some you know there's some incidentals in between that uh, you know I I think you remember I've got some pretty tight friends that are team guys. Sure. Yeah, I do. Uh, and they had always been soliciting me for assistance with the dogs after the uh after the vietnam war the uh, canine program was deactivated so lo and behold comes iraq and our middle east crisis and they had to spin the canine program up pretty quick without a lot of current knowledge and training practice capability so uh i was doing a little quasi consulting with them and one of my best friends in fact the best man in my wedding i won't mention any names convinced me to spend some time with dev group on an invitation which i did and it was supposed to be a one day come hang out see what they do learn the process well one day turned into two 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 turned into three and then i ended up spending a whole week with uh, all of the teams at dev group which was a great experience great guys great knowledge then I went back to Texas and was contacted by uh, Cobra about coming to Little Creek and uh, working with the white teams at Little Creek, which is where you and I became good friends and uh, shared a lot of laughs and good times together. <laughs> there were there were plenty of those, <laughs> for sure, for sure. After the uh, cut in budget, reduction in staff, reduction in dogs, I got a phone call from the Department of State via a company called Aegis. They offered me a uh, slot with the security forces in uh, Afghanistan. So I went through the FBI clearance verification, qualification, and uh, background checks and uh, accepted the position, went over to Afghanistan as a handler, as a a, uh, IED handler running over the wire sweeps for the uh, hot teams with the uh, embassy and so on and so forth that evolved after about oh i think i was there maybe 30 days and they bumped me up to uh promoted me it was volunteer promoted to kennel master in charge of all the training so i had uh at that time i had 38 hardheads of all walks of life that were dog handlers that i was responsible to get ready to go over the wire so I did that contract, fulfilled it, came back to the States and got another phone call from Triple Canopy who requested uh, 
me to join their team and become a uh, advisor because of the uh, Geneva rules and so on and so forth. We were considered advisors, but in actuality, what we did was take their young canine handlers and dogs and put them through the ranks and uh, for explosives and tracking, predominantly tracking, because it was uh, basically a track and capture, track and kill operation, uh, protecting U.S. assets in Southeast Asia in the jungle. Oh, cool. So, so that's that's a pretty good leap from Afghanistan to to Southeast Asia. What is uh, what is the the training? How how did it change? You know. Well, obviously, you go from a hot desert or a cold winter in Afghanistan, which I experienced both, and then you're in the uh, jungle with banana leaves as big as your house. You know, it's seventy five in the morning when you wake up at six o'clock. And it's 95 at night when you go to bed at 6 o'clock. It was a 12-on-12 cycle. Our shifts were, uh, our rotations were 12-on, 12-off, six days a week. So rain every day, humid, so on and so forth. But the glorious thing about that, and I can get into more detail about the ops, but the glorious thing about that was we had the versatility to go up in altitude, okay, our chews and our fob was at sea level, but we would, I would take my guys and we'd operate anywhere from 8,500 to 14,000 feet. So the temperature was nice and cool during the day. Yes. And then you, you know, you start your trek down the MSR about an hour ahead of time before your EOM, before your end of mission. And, uh, and it's starting to cool off. So it's just, you know, managing the weather. Well, you have to do that not only for yourself, but for the dogs, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We trained the dogs at sea level. And uh, when I first got tasked on site, I was an instructor and I had a, uh, I had to teach 14 uh, QRF and uh, special op military guys a PowerPoint that was written in English and they spoke Bahasa. So I had a interpreter there with me at every class and i broke it down so we would do classroom in the morning and do practical in the afternoon and we would take a subject every day and then i would go out and teach them the applications of that particular subject on that particular day and sometimes it took one day to accomplish something and sometimes one one task might take me a week because of variables relative to their indonesia's background and learning capabilities and so on and so forth There's, and I'm sure you understand what I mean. I'm just curious uh, if you could leave the language barrier out, how do you think that they compared to their Amer- the American counterparts? Can you make an assessment of that? Yeah, yeah, I can. They were passionate about their dogs. They weren't fearful of them. And these were all dual purpose animals, okay. alley shepherds, so on and so forth. They were all compassionate about their animals, very caring. And they, the only thing they really grasped was the mission itself. But as far as on a personal level, sure. They, they, uh, you know, they, they never were, you know, a two mile track wasn't a challenge to them. They never quit. They never gave up. They showed up in time to clean their kennels and groom their dogs and do all the animal husbandry. So, you know, they were, they were, 
they were pretty upstanding when it came to all of that. Interesting. I just was curious, not knowing the culture, I would imagine that there could be some cultures that would make that uh, could make that task maybe more more difficult, or could could make them more adept at picking and up. The only the issue we had was the language barrier, and mm-hmm. and they did speak some English, so I took it upon myself to learn to speak their language. Right. So so as time went by, the communication barrier became less of an obstacle. You know, I, yeah. I learned the key phrases and and what have you, so I could communicate them when we were doing uh, classroom as well as practical training. Yeah, that's great. And so how long were you there? Almost two years. Okay. So, and what was your operational tempo there? It it wasn't bad. In my position, I was a TC. I was a truck commander. We had three armored vehicles geared up, 100% geared up, and I had four Indonesian military special ops shooters, and I had four QRF police shooters in two separate vehicles. The lead truck, which was my truck, Fox 4, was myself. And then I had a command officer, which was either a colonel, a captain, lieutenant. And then I had a interpreter and a canine handler. Canine handler always stayed with me. And the typical op was punch out in the morning, uh, get your security brief, punch out in the morning, head up the mountain on the MSR and do road patrol and foot patrols looking for Indonesian bad guys that were disruptive and potential threat to the assets and the production of what was going on in the area. Okay, cool. Very cool. Well, I mean, so from a, uh, a contractor's point of view on that, what is, uh, I guess, what, what was their mission? What, I mean, what are they actually trying to keep from happening, I guess, if you can talk about that? Are you talking about the guys that were with me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's where it gets that's where it gets sideways. They were real good at sleeping, loved to eat. <laughs> any, any any foot patrols over a mile was out of the question. <laughs> uh, they'd rather be training than on patrol or on an op, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And and then I got switched. It's kind of a funny story. I'll uh, I'll tell you about it real quick. Is my uh, my headset came to me? He said, "Hey man, I got an opening at nights. You want to take nights?" And I said, "Hell no, I don't want to take nights." I said, "I won't be able to stay awake for twelve hours from six to six in the morning." And I he goes, "Hey brother, you got to take this up. I'm telling you, you, it's right up your alley." I said, "His name was Kevin." I said, "Kevin, no, I'm not going to nights. I'm happy on days. I got my program, got my chew. I'm look, got my banana tree right in the back. Yeah, I got everything working for me. No nights." And he goes, trust me. He goes, you trust me? I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, trust me. Take the night up. You'll be happy. So I said, okay, I'll do it. For you, I'll do it. So I got an upgrade in my chew because I went to nights, and which was pretty nice. And the first night, and he had kind of a shitty eating grin on his face about this all the time. And so he said, okay, your, your security brief's at 1,700. And I said, okay, I'll be there. So I roll up at the security brief, 1,700. All the headsheds are there and going over all the problems that are going on, yada, 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 yada. And then my next task is to go to where the my armed guards, my armed officers are located and pick them up in their vehicles. So now we got a three-vehicle convoy, then, and it's dinner time. So they 
direct me over to this little pavilion in the back of a machinery area and, and we pull in and it's kind of lightly raining and I'm going, oh, this is going to be a long night. They get out, get their food out and roll up their pant legs, take their boots and socks off, smoking their cigarettes, eating their dinner. And I'm looking down at my watch and now it's seven o'clock. I'm going, wow, this is going to be a long night. At about 7.30, the commander comes over to me and he goes, hey, Tim. I said, yes, sir. He says, we go home. <laughs> I said, excuse me? We go home. I said, you're going home? Why are you going home? He goes, we don't like the dark. We don't work at night. We go home. <laughs> <laughs> so, dude, I kid you not. They loaded up in those trucks, and they hauled ass. And I called my boss. I called Kevin. And he knew it was me because of the phone I did. He answers the phone. He's laughing his ass off. He goes, I told you you'd like nights. <laughs> yeah. So for four straight months, I probably did. I think the longest night patrol night op we had was maybe four hours. So not to get off the subject of dogs or anything, but just to give you a little bit about how the real world works out there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Especially in, in a different country, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. sure. All right. So, so from there, where, where did you land after that? So, uh, 2015, I had already fulfilled my contract, then some. I signed up for a year, but I was way past the year. I came home to Texas after being gone literally from the time I went BOG at Little Creek until November 15th. I was only home intermittently. So mama was kind of like, you know, you know how you walk in the door and you get that look? And uh, she'd had enough. It had been you know, three years, three and a half years of me rocking and rolling and being gone and doing all this thing that somebody's got to do. So I packed it in and uh, started a, uh, took all my training, canine, yaddy, 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 and uh, all the schools I had to go through with the Department of State and Triple Can, yeah, um, which, you know, there's a lot of, uh, well, Rich, you are a cop. You know the training you have to go through, self-defense and what have you. Well, this is on a, you know, this is on about a uh, 10 task to that. So language, culture, everything, and self-defense and knives and yeah, yeah. So end of long story, I came home and I said, you know what? I'm going to start up. Uh, oh, I know. I came home, went to work for Clint Bruce. Clint Bruce is a former Navy SEAL that had a security company in Dallas. And he had been soliciting me uh, to come to work for him. So I came home. We had a meeting. And he put me to work, and I was doing uh, EP gigs, uh, teaching CQC, firearms, training Leos in vehicle techs and stuff like that, da-da-da-da-da. Then I went off, started my own company, branched out, was doing real well, having fun, doing a lot of personal training, self-defense kind of stuff, uh, intermixing that with problem-solving with the canines, a lot of canines coming in. There's a lot of, in, in the area... I'm from, there are a lot of agencies that have canine teams. And so consequently, you know, word got around, you, you, you go to a training session and you start talking to guys and you help them solve a little problem. And then the next thing you know, you got three guys calling you and, hey, you know, well, how do I, da, da, da. and it just evolves, kind of snowballs there. And it was a lot of fun. Then I got a phone call from a buddy that I served with in Afghanistan and Southeast Asia. And he offered me a gig with his company that he had just went to work for. 
so we we ironed out the uh, details on it, and and I left. It was a Oconus, uh, or I'm sorry, a Conus deployment in Alabama, and I rolled in, got set up, and I was teaching um, Rangers, our U.S. Rangers, and law enforcement guys, tactical slash IED narcotics training and and deployment and so on and so forth and that gig lasted it was only supposed to last a month and it ended up lasting nine months and it was a great time got a met a lot of great people and in fact i keep in touch with most of them to this day both from the military and the leo perspective and uh, went home my wife called me and said uh, i'm selling the house this was in texas i said uh okay when she was now so that gig ended in the end of November. I went home for Thanksgiving, and we were packed and moved by Christmas. That happened that fast. To Alabama or to Florida? We, we moved in with her mom in Texas while we were looking for a place in Florida. Oh, okay, okay. And we found a place in Florida, and I popped smoke on April, I believe it was April 6th of last year and drove to Florida with my dog, Rico, and all my personal stuff and yada yada and came here and started getting settled in. Shannon followed me about a month or six months, or I'm sorry, a month or six weeks later. And so now here we are in Florida. Wow. That's a big change. So when when did you get rid of this? I guess we're backpedaling a little bit, but because I know that your your family was kind of working with you in the bird dog world there at one time in Texas, right? When did, you, when did you get rid of that one? Ironically, the actual uh, foundation of the gun dogs kind of went away in 2010, 2009. And then, uh, it, it, you know, Rich, I got to tell you, I did that. I did that for a long time. Yeah. And, and the challenge wasn't there anymore. I, I don't know how to explain that. And so I kind of started not losing interest, but I didn't have the desire to be in the circuit and running the competition stuff and chasing ribbons and all that kind of stuff. So I just started training meat dogs, you know, doing evaluations on dog. Yeah, you got a good dog here or no, you don't. Or, And we put them through the paces and, you know, in two or three months, they'd have a gun dog they could take hunting with them. And, and I got to tell you, although running the circuits and doing the uh, AKC hunt test stuff and the HRA hunt test stuff was all great. It was a good experience. Met a lot of great people. I, I got more true satisfaction out of just me and the dog or me and the dog and the client. You know, that one-on-one, feely, touchy relationship, slow pace, take your time. You know, I didn't have, I, I you know, at one point, Rich, I had 38 dogs. I had a string of 38 gun dogs I was rolling with. Wow. Yeah. I had two assistants and a kennel tech. And it was sun up to sundown seven days a week, man. And back then I was young and I'm loving it and enjoying it. And it was all good. But, you know, then it was just kind of like a switch flipped. And I said, you know, I can get more out of this this way. I I can still make a good living doing this. And I don't have the hustle and the bustle. I can work an eight-hour day. I can handle a handful of dogs and train a handful of dogs and work real closely with their clients and give them a good product and and develop a good relationship with them um, versus chasing tails, so to speak. You know, it gets old when you're doing water work, watching 
assholes swim away from you all day long. Is that <laughs> doing? Kicking that dog off in the water, and off he goes on a 200-yard swim, and you're sitting there watching him and watch him, and then he's coming back, and then the next dog. I mean, the amount of dogs I had, water work took all day long. I'll bet it did. I bet yeah. it did. Very cool. So that's a cool transition, though, you know. That's, yeah, uh, and, and, and like I, I started to mention this, but, you know, then when Jeff, you know, the uh, I started dabbling with the with the uh, working canine, the uh, KMPV-type uh, bite dogs and stuff, and uh, I trained three of them, and and they turned out pretty daggone good and was having fun, and then obviously going to dev group and getting a little bit of um, confidence and then going to... Little Creek with you guys, you know, picked up a tremendous amount of knowledge there from you guys and had a great time. And then it just it just kept snowballing. Like I said, it's you know, it's a passion. You know, it's it, to me, it's a passion. Yeah. Howard, I don't know anything about that. And, <laughs> and you guys, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's yeah. a passion. You know, you eat, sleep and drink it day in and day out. And and you, it never gets old. It, you know, it, it might get boring it might get you might get sidetracked or you might get frustrated and you got to step back and look at things and take a break and you know but if you really think about it the actual hands-on training you and that dog never gets old maybe dealing with the client or the phone ringing or paying the bills those things interfere with it but when it really comes down to it it's there's nothing there's nothing that replaces, you know, picking up that leash and watching that dog work magic. Nothing, in my opinion. I would I would agree wholeheartedly. Howard, Howard, he's he's had a leash or two in his hand over the years. Yeah. Go. What's funny is I was just I'm listening to your story. And I'm thinking about you know a little bit what mine was like, and uh, and I've mentioned this before is that when I was hired. Man, I was so out of my depth in, in, in many respects because my experience was what you're describing, what I was able to do with a dog and a leash. And now I was tasked with this responsibility now of didn't matter what I could do is what can I get these guys to do proficiently? And, and therein lies the for the last 30 years. That's been my life is that it's been really instructing and, you know, over 30 years, that's that's a lot of different personalities, different types of people. Sure. You've got your, you know, your hard chargers and you've got your guys that you got to check their pulse to make sure that, you know, they're still the heart's still beating and they, they're still there. Yep. So, yeah. And lots of challenges along the way. But you do have to have the passion to carry you through that. And and really, I, I guess you almost have to learn how to live vicariously through their successes of course, you also wear their their failures as well, and uh, and and you have to help them. A lot of times, you're their their wet nurse. You have to pick them up, dust them off, and tell them, you know, it's going to be okay, because there are failures. Things don't go the way we always think they should go, especially that first deployment. Like they have it all laid out in their head what it's going to look like, and doesn't <laughs> doesn't go that way, right? That's right. Oh, that's why there's always a plan B. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly why, you know, I've never, I've never been involved in a pre-op brief that didn't have a plan B and a plan C. <laughs> you know, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. But I'll touch base 
back to that a little bit about that confidence you know i just gotten i just broken into it and there was a fella that had a kennel up in cooper texas that i heard about and his name was mike ritlin <laughs> so i said i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna reach out to this guy i'm gonna find out who he is so i i did some research and everything and lo and behold i get a phone number and i call him and this guy answers the phone he says hello i said hey mike and he says yeah I said, my name is Tim Slattery. He goes, yeah. I said, look, you know, I got your name and number from a guy named Lou Massey, who is uh, over at Virginia Beach. He goes, oh, yeah, I know Lou. He goes, what's up? So I gave him a little background on me. And I said, look, I want to I get more involved in what you're doing. And he said, well, why don't you come up? So then the long story, I went out, we met, we hit it off first class. We start training together. We're doing bite work together, detection, yada, 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 yada. And I was driving an hour and a half one way every day. I'd throw a couple of dogs in the truck, and I'd head out there, and we'd work dogs all day. We'd have lunch. We'd drink beer. And he owned a company called STG, or Strident, I'm sorry. And he had the current contract for West Coast, as you probably recall, Rich, back in the day. And uh, so he reached out to me, and he said, hey, man, he goes, you want to go to work for me? And I said, go to work for you doing what? And he goes, out at... Uh, out of the West Coast teams, training dogs and handlers. I said, no, dude. <laughs> he goes, why not? I said, because I'm not at that level. You're talking U.S. Navy SEALs. You know, I'm just a little old gun dog trainer. He goes, no, man, you're there. You got it. You got it. You got it. You got it. I said, no, man. I said, I appreciate the offer, and I appreciate your faith and trust and yada, yada. So he goes, I'll tell you what. I'm going to work on something. Let me see if I can make it happen. I said, okay, cool. So um, driving down the road one day, and the phone rings. He says, hey. He goes, we're doing a full-blown canine training, 12-week training program at Fort McClellan, Alabama. He goes, it's off the grid, yada, yada, yada. He goes, if I can get you accepted, if I can get you approved, if I can run it up the chain of command and get it approved, do you want to do, do it? I said, really? <laughs> Hell yeah, I'm going to do it. So about three days went by. I was on my way to Dallas. My pickup truck phone rings. It was a uh, it was a Tuesday, and uh, he goes, "Hey man," I said, "Yeah." He goes, "You're good to go." I said, "Excuse me." He goes, "They did your background, they did your clearance, yada yada yada." He goes, "You'll be the first U.S. citizen to ever travel or ever be involved in a U.S. Navy SEAL canine program." And I said, "Damn, that's pretty cool." So I uh, I said, "When do I have to be there?" And he goes, "Sunday." I said, "Someday." So. Went home, kissed the wife, made the arrangement, packed up my stuff, jumped in the truck, and had to Fort McClellan to go through a 12-week Navy SEAL canine full-on, full-on training program. That's really cool. Yeah, best experience, one of the best experiences. And, of course, you know, we got all the we got all the Haji villages available to us and mm -hmm. all, the, all the stuff you read about or you see pictures of, and we have full access to all of that. And we're using it every day, and we're just doing all kinds of neat stuff and learning just incredible capability, canine capabilities, just incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. What I was going to point out is that a lot of our, we've come to find out that a lot of our listeners are law enforcement canine guys and gals, and they they listen specifically to get information that's going to make them better. So I know that some of them are really really listen intently and they respond when they hear something that resonates with them. So uh, they're looking for information from experienced folks and 
So I do think we need to touch on on specific the specifics of that. What, what would you want to just off the cuff in in a general way? What would you want to convey to a handler that's just getting started? Hey, folks, we're proud to have Hold the Line Canine Conference as a supporter and sponsor of the Working Dog Depot podcast. Joe Lukowski and staff are already securing vendors and presenters for the seminar in April. That's April 9th, 10th, and 11th in a brand new location. That's right, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We are especially excited about that. It's going to cut our travel time in half, and there's nothing like being in the Carolinas in early April. And that's Hold the Line Canine Conference. We're very much looking forward to being there and hope to see you all there. Thank you. Patience, 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 and more patience. Because there's nothing more than being a young green handler with a green or potentially green, even with a dog that's got some training under its collar and you don't know how to read the dog. So it can be, it can be you know, it can be very frustrating and uh, what I used to recommend to my clients a long time ago is there's a, uh, and I think, Rich, I may even said something to you way back in the day, but there's a book out there called uh, Canine Language. It's a paperback book that's got four wolves on the front of it. And it's written by three animal behavior scientists. And it talks about the canid and the behavioral abilities and instincts of how they communicate. And it's, it's a really, really, really good read. And I've recommended it to a lot of people. But back to what you're saying, from a young handler, green handler perspective, you got to be patient and you got to have a good mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've trained tons and tons and tons of Leos from uh, Upper East Coast all the way down to Georgia, Alabama, Texas, all across. And, and I've never met one handler or one team that was just like another team. Every one of them is different. They all have the, they all have their weaknesses. They all have their strengths. They have their frustrations. They have their egos. You know, it all rolls into it. And as long as you're holding onto that leash, the dog's listening to everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think patience is a big factor in in preparing for worst case scenarios. You know, it's. You know, there's a illustration that talks about uh, or demonstrates just the process of canine training. You know, we we envision this straight line that goes in a steady pattern, but it you know it it goes it goes like this. It may have a gradual increase in the direction that we want to go, but there's all kinds of hills and valleys and all okay. kinds of things. Howard, there there are no valleys. I watch Instagram all the time. <laughs> hey, I can show you the good stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being facetious, of course. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. There are, you know, highs and lows, and you know, that we we try to minimize our our setbacks in training as much as we can by understanding where the dog is. About, I, I think, you know, for me personally, I think the biggest mistake I see most people make is they always get in a hurry with their dog. And so, Tim, your your whole idea of patience, not only with themselves but also with their dog. You know, if, if my dog is not getting or just like when you're teaching someone, if they're not getting it, I always look at myself first. Am I not putting the information out correctly? Am I if I said something or that I, I think I said it because I've said it so many times it was in my head. But did it actually come out of my mouth? 
So yeah. that probably fixes it most of the time, doesn't it? It absolutely does. <laughs> it absolutely does. <laughs> no, you get you get a good point, and and um, and I know we've all had numerous experiences where we've made something we made it we've made a decision which was wrong, and we suffered the consequences. But the the thing about suffering the consequences is how detrimental was the error in affecting right. the dog's trainability. You know, and I'm a I'm a I'm an anti-compulsion trainer. I went from a being a compulsive, relatively not strong-handed compulsive uh, gun dog trainer to strictly upper conditioning methodology, positive reinforcement training, which has paid huge, huge dividends over the years. Uh, you know, with with some of the toughest dogs, you know, the biggest assholes in the world down to just the, uh, you know, the sweethearts that, you know, you'd like to see them put a patrol vest on, but it's never going to happen. They all don't make it, right? <laughs> they all don't make it. That's for sure, brother. They don't, and I can tell you another thing is if you're afraid to get bit, you're in the wrong business. If you're working a patrol dog, you're a Leo, and you are afraid to get bit, you're in the wrong business. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. Because sometimes we make mistakes that the dogs don't understand. And once they've been taught that biting is okay, then they learn to use that mechanism to defend themselves when they feel that they're being treated unfairly. Trust me, been there many times. Well, I think, think, they, I think to make we can all appreciate that statement. <laughs> I know you can. Absolutely. 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 You know, and we did, you know, the pro program I go through, like I said, there's there's Leo's up and down the road that I get pictures from on Big Bus. I had two guys less. Uh, can't get into it because it's still in evidence. Anyway, I believe you got to take your time. You got to be patient and you got to look at the simplicities of what you're trying to teach. These are dogs. They're canines. OK, they don't think like we think. It's a, it's an animal. It's, it's, you know, it has its natural instinctive behaviors and it, it's going to communicate to you if you allow it to do so, you know, like licking its lips, it's a sign of nervousness, uh, avoiding you, looking away from you. You know, all these things are communicative languages that they're trying to tell us, Hey, this ain't right. Or something's wrong. Or, I'm not feeling it, brother. <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to do with me, but I'm just not feeling it right now. Mm -hmm. I've got some great videos, training videos, Rich. We, uh, when I was at that last gig in Alabama, we started documenting procedures on video and we use a table, uh, for teaching outs. Cause I think probably I would say 70% of my Leos that I've worked with biggest issue, most, most undesirable was getting the dog to out on a bite, you know, without having to choke them off. And, uh, and so we did a uh, Scott Reinhardt and I did a did a sequence of videos about how to teach the dog that out is a good word. And in other words, when you go up behind the dog and you're hollering out or loose, and his eyes are rolling up in the back of his head because he knows the next thing's coming when he hears that command is a choke off, and they you know intensify that bite another twenty pounds of pressure, and now you're into a physical fight. Well, you know we've we've developed a methodology to avoid all that make outs be good make lows be good versus a conflict 
Does that make sense? No, yeah. absolutely. Versus yeah. a conflict. Because, you know, the last thing you want with a patrol dog is a conflict because you're not going to win. You will not win a conflict with a dog that has become confused or misunderstood or, you know, uh, I, I've, I've had handlers yelling at their dogs. I'm like, whoa, whoa, brother, brother, what? He can hear you. He's only 10 feet away from you. You don't need to be yelling at him, <laughs> you know? You ever check the decibels of a dog's ear versus yours? Capabilities, I mean, versus yours? He knows what you're saying. You don't need to yell at him. Unless little things like that. Kind of my pet peeves. Oh, no, I think conflict is probably the one of the biggest things that, that occurs. And we, uh, one of our guests, uh, one of our buddies, has been on the road this past doing several seminars talked to him recently he said that system that he's been using with these teams he's been in front of 400 teams at this point and there's only been one dog that, that they've not been able to get to work properly and it's really a way of removing the conflict exactly man and i you know and, and to hear to talk to a layman they may say oh what that's bullshit no i believe it man if you if you figure out how the dog works how to communicate with a dog you can get them to climb a flagpole if you want no 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 shit man they'll do anything you want but relationship non-conflict and reward 100 percent. put the ego off the shelf get rid of the ego at your partner treat it like a partner Treat it like your best friend. And some bitch may save your life someday. Mm-hmm. But do, do you think, you know, and, and just in my opinion, I think that it's conflict comes a majority of the time because they don't understand what the dog is telling them. 99%. They don't understand what the dog's doing in the moment. Just because I feel a certain way as a person doesn't mean my dog understands anything that I'm wanting from them. You're and exactly. so we, sometimes we create that conflict, you know, unknowingly. I, I agree 100% with you. You know, you can't blame them if you don't train them. And if you don't know how to train them, if you're creating conflict, you're putting too much pressure on them too soon. If you don't understand what they're trying to communicate to you, then you're going to have a conflict. And it may not be a bite, you know. It could be a bolt. It could run away from you. They could shut down on you. There's a million different types of, of examples of conflict in the dog's mind. And it's, and, and it's up to us as trainers and handlers to recognize things are going sideways. You know, I've got an old saying, no training is better than bad training. So if I'm having a bad day with the dogs, whether, you know, my wife made me sleep on the couch or whatever it might be, I'm not going to put my hands on a dog unless I'm just going to throw a ball for him or something. Because in my mind, I've got conflict of my own going on, and it's just only going to transfer down to the animal when I'm trying to teach it something new, if I'm not 100% focused on what I'm teaching and the responses I'm getting. Does that make sense? Oh, mm-hmm. they, they know exactly when you're not being legitimate with them. Yep. 100%, if you're, man. If you're mailing it in and your dog is not giving you what you want, then trust me, they're mailing it in as well. And, and, if, and part of the, part of the issue is that which I, what I like to teach is, okay, you tried this and it didn't work. Don't keep trying it. There's something else. Think out of the box. Put it into simple format. You know, keep it simple. Teach it in baby steps. And then you'll overcome the conflict and you help the dog understand. Because during a dog's learning process, they're learning to learn. As you teach them and they become successful, they go, oh, okay. 
and that process increases. So more difficult tasks that you're blocking become easier for the dog to learn because they learn how to pair examples of training together. Am I making sense? Am I getting too deep here? No, no. No. Okay. Just, and, and just, so, we'll back up just a second and give give the listeners just an example of what that looks like, just for those that maybe got lost in the weeds for a second. Uh, okay. So, uh, okay. We've all had that proverbial dog that won't sit. Okay. Although that is a natural capability. Sitting for a dog is just like breathing. Okay. But they won't sit. Okay. Is it is it our voice infliction? Is it, are we putting too much pressure on the leash? If we're losing the, using the leash, I don't, I don't teach shit with a leash, but so, okay, what am I doing that's not working? Okay. Okay. Am I yelling? Am I, am I being too loud with my command? Am I, am I yanking on the leash at the wrong time? Okay. If I say sit and then crank the leash on the dog, you know, at the same time I'm saying sit, well, now sit becomes a, punishment term because you you cross over a, a command with a correction and now that command signifies that there's a correction coming when all it is is an action command which is sit and it, i'm trying to put it in layman as i possibly can and so consequently when i'm working with a student typically with a leo and they're working their own dog and i'm standing there watching them and they're having problems i'll just say stop take a breath now think about what you're doing Think about what you're trying to communicate to the dog. You understand it because you're doing it and, and, and you're more intelligent than the dog. Now you got to figure out a way to break it down to his term or her term so that they understand what you want. So, and I, and I, and I impose questions on them. I want them to think through it. I want them to be trainers because they're going to be out on the road someday doing their own training and they're going to be able to, they're not going to be able to call me every time. You got to be able to think through these things and help yourself figure out what's the problem. Why am I not communicating what I want to the dog at a level it understands? And so you start breaking these things down and backing them down. And that goes as far, and that's the same with bite work, you know, putting the dog on a sleeve and you got a lot of conflict. He's real noisy, his ears are pinned back, you know, eyes are rolling up, he's growling, he's biting, he's mouthy, you know. And the last thing you want to do is put a fight in that sleeve. You know this, Rich, as well as I do. Last thing you want to do is put a fight in that sleeve of that young dog. Calm him down. Pull him up. Hold on to him. Talk to him. Let him know, hey, buddy, we're in this together. I'm just a very compassionate. My methodology takes a little bit longer initially, but once it sinks in, things just fly. They just they just fly. They just take off, you know, because the dog's having fun and he wants to work and he's not tucking his tail coming out of the box of the truck and so on and so forth it's very rewarding it's it's to see the light go on so to speak mm-hmm. I agree. So, tim what what does your ideal dog look like what do you like in a dog well i gotta tell you guys i lost my dog a couple months ago hmm. rico was a belgian malinois about 88 pounds he did four deployments with uh rich you don't remember, do you remember Rico? Uh, no, not off the top of my head. No, I don't. Okay. Do you remember that dog Jeff put me with? We're doing uh, building searches out there, building, and he ate my ass. He just oh, yeah, yeah. ran circles around me, you know, young dog, KMPV. Well, anyway, I ended up with Rico after his final deployment. And um, and I can only equate what I like in a dog. I like, an, I, I like, a, I like a level-headed dog. 
I like a dog that can think on its own, that has good worth that work ethic, you know, that can bite, that, you know, that can handle his own, that's athletic, but can be social with other dogs and other people that you don't have to babysit and worry about every time you open a crate kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm partial to Mally's and, uh, and, uh, Belgian shepherds. My, my deployment dog was a female Belgian shepherd that almost got fired because she was eating everybody's ass, but that's a whole nother story. But you know, that's what I look like. I, I, I like the new mallard breed that's coming out. You kind of get a mix of both. So from me personally, what I like, that's what I did. There isn't a dog I'll turn away. I, I don't, I think every dog deserves the opportunity and every dog has a job. It's just, we got to find as trainers and handlers, we got to find what that dog's job is. I don't think that you should make shift a patrol dog and call it a patrol dog and put it in a car and never put it to work because it doesn't have the ability to work. If you want a patrol dog, you should have a trained patrol dog. If you want a single purpose dog, you should have a single purpose dog. And that's what its job is. So that the dog knows every day on every op, every time that car starts up and he's going to work, he knows what his job is going to be. And there's no deviation. And he should never ask more of a dog than he hasn't been taught. Ever. Ever. You got a patrol dog is not a SWAT dog. You know, just because you may have you may have a badass bite dog that's your best friend in the world, but if you put him in a SWAT environment and the game changes. And all of a sudden, that dog's world comes unraveled real fast, and there's where you develop conflict. Right. That that is the, the I think that is a big uh, a big problem we have, especially with smaller agencies, because they want these dogs to do all these different things that they want to do in life, but they don't have the training, the know-how, the capability to put those things in place. I've got a I've got a really 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 close buddy that I served with in. Afghanistan, it's, he's a cop, he's a Leo, and he's a great guy. And uh, uh, he did an extraction op with me down in Bolivia, a high threat op. And he has gone back to, he was canine ages ago. I'm talking like 15 years ago. And he got offered a canine slot with the sheriff's department. And Curtis is 50 years old. And he's going through a, he's going through class right now. And, you know, he's touching base with me every couple of days and telling what's going on and yaddy, yaddy, yaddy. And, and, he is going, here we go. He's going through a patrol training course with a green, green female Malinois, beautiful dog, gorgeous. And they're going to certify him in patrol in five weeks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad about it. You know, uh, Hey, maybe it can be done. I'm not, I'm not being, I don't want to, I don't want this to come across as being negative, but you know, I've got 33 years of dogs under my belt and my my leo course was 10 weeks 10 weeks seven days a week sun up to sundown to get them where they were capable not experts but capable of going out and doing the job you know and i just five weeks and, and what it's come down to is money you know in my opinion agencies don't have the money they don't have the budget oh i would agree and, and you know it's, it, it, you said you know i think the the we had a, a, a trainer on uh, John Imler, really good trainer. He and he was he brought up the the subject that everybody has a different idea of what a trained dog looks like. You know, some of these places don't understand what what a trained dog. You said I got a green dog and I'm going to go five weeks. Well, you know, at Little Creek we we pre train those dogs six weeks before we stuck them in a class. 
thank you. You know, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then after that, then it was then all your workups. So they got 14 weeks, and then how long was that workup before deployment? Yeah, you know? and then some of those dogs we got in rich had wheels on them when they came into us too, and we still put them through six weeks of X Y Z. Sure. Um, you Absolutely. know, of course, of course, we're dealing with tier one versus versus Leo. You know, there's a there's definitely a separation and and responsibility and operational performance from that perspective but geez you know i have probably i don't know how many times i i can't count that i that i like to give back so I, that where i've had an agency call me and say hey can you come look at our dogs tell us what you think give us an honest opinion and i'm like hell yeah absolutely and i'll go out and attend a training session and you know rub elbows and bullshit and everything and then give them an honest assessment and then on my own dime, spend another five days working with them. And, 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 and I look, what I do is say, okay, you guys tell me where you're weak. You tell me what your problems are. And it can be anything from, well, my dog can't handle gunfire. And, and, you know, uh, right. And it goes on and on and on. And, you know, and, and I'll start it off with, with tactical obedience and they're what's tactical obedience. Well, take your leash off and do obedience with your dog. Well, I can't do that. <laughs> He'll run off. You know what I mean. Sure. Absolutely. I know you both have been there to some extent. Well, you know, the whole reduced time or, or brief periods, these training schools are they were they were created by vendors and because to make them more marketable, obviously, because agencies don't want to send their their handlers away. So there there are actually agencies out there that are literally shopping for the shortest, briefest period of time Absolutely. that their handlers are going to be away. And, and in, in order to, to fix that, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the fix. If it's available, people are going to gravitate toward it. The, the, the only fix, which is what I've talked about, is, is let's say, hypothetically, Billy Bob Rich decides he's going to do a mobile training service and he goes to the agency. They contract him for six weeks to come to their agency and their training grounds and work with their canine guys for three hours a day so that it doesn't interfere with their travel, their budget, so on and so forth. They're in their own environment. That is really the only solution is if somebody would would have that type of operation available because most trainers, in my opinion, you know, hey, if you're if you're if you're a dog trainer, you ain't gonna get rich. Mm-hmm. We all know that. And, and you know, it's more about going and helping out. For me, it is going and helping out, showing up, solving problems, making better dogs, making a little money, and then going to the next place. I don't know. That's just a thought. Or, you know, or if there's, there's not a standard across the country, you know, you're a, right. a national standard. And there never will be. And one of the <laughs> other things that I, I came up on talking to various police agencies is, you know, you get with their head trainer and you say, Hey man, where'd you learn how to train dogs? And where'd you learn your patrol capabilities? And he says, well, uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Bob taught me. Oh, really? Yeah. Lieutenant Bob was a canine handler. Oh, great. Well, where'd Lieutenant Bob learn from? Well, he learned from Captain Morgan and well, where'd Captain Morgan learn from? Well, he learned from old, old, Peter, who's retired now, canine guy. So it's a hand-me-down program. A watered-down hand-me-down program. 
watered-down, hand-me-down program within the agencies, right? Um, not realizing how many capabilities their dog potentially has and maximizing the performance of their dogs through proper training. And I'm not taking anything away. Please don't take this out of context from any of those programs that exist because they have to do what they have to do to get by and make it work. And I get that. I get that. Rich and I have seen them firsthand. And and what's really interesting is that there are some, some things that have developed or beliefs that have developed out of those those arrangements. You know, they're really kind of funny that you can ask, well, why do you do it this way? I don't know. It's just the way we've always done it. So How many times have you heard that? <laughs> How many times have you heard that? I and I agree. You know, it's 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 an ongoing dilemma. I mean, we're never going to have a perfect canine world because there's always going to be those uh, variables that exist. Oh sure. But it's it's guys it's guys like us that do our best to curve that graph to make it as possible as can be for everybody that's got their leash in a hand. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you doing now? I guess what's the, what's, what's, what's the business in Florida look like now? Uh, I got a, I'm, I'm kind of testing the waters. I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, I, I get a lot of, I get a lot of email requests, help, I'm doing a lot of, I guess you, I guess you could call it quasi online consulting. I had a, I had a hell of a lot of students on that last gig, and there's still some of them are struggling. So they reach out to me in the in the spring. I'm sorry, in the fall. It's too hot now, but in the fall, I've got two agencies. I've got a, I've got a visit in which I will go up and spend a couple of weeks with their canine program this fall when it starts to cool off, probably October. I've had two two come out. I've got to go to Texas this fall, this winter. So I'm just if the opportunity's there to put my hands on some dogs and help somebody, that's what I'm doing. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I've developed a incredible incredible PowerPoint program that's uh, it's about fifty hours long, all canine, multi-purpose. I've developed a uh, IED. PowerPoint for bomb dog Leos that are bomb dog guys, identification and hazard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done it. I've developed a narcotics IED, you know, explaining all the burnoffs and stuff of various chemicals within the compounds to help them better understand why their dog's struggling on meth, but it goes out and sits on every seed of marijuana in the block, you know, things like that. Just get, breaking it down to the science about how our dogs work, you know, the olfactory gland details, yada, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Cool. Very cool. Very yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot of fun developing that stuff. It sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like there's, I think that uh, taking the show on the road may be where it's at. Less overhead, no no dog kennels. Yep. You, you, you sound like you're taking in the Howard Young uh perspective that howard's been in the dog business for 25 years and has no dog tell you what i've got my i've got my bsd boxes you know i've got my protocol boxes i've got i've got all my stuff you know all i gotta do is toss it in the back of my yukon and i'm gone (laughs) nice well tim just to be a respectful of your time we we try to keep these things to right at an hour oh shit i thought it was midnight now <laughs> it's good. No, no, not at all. That's what happens when you get talking. It's a good thing we're not drinking. We'd be here at the two in the morning. 
Well, I was going to make us some orange crushes and send them on the way. Virginia Beach reminder. Next time. Next time. So uh, how, how can people get a hold of you? If I'm, we'll, we'll put this in the show notes as well if they're interested. Uh, okay. You can punch out my email, which is timstg56 at gmail.com. Fair enough. Howard, you have anything for the last round I here? Don't. Tim, I appreciate you spending time with us tonight. We'll. Uh, I loved it. Good. Need Good. to we need to we need to rendezvous someplace, gentlemen. Absolutely, I would agree with that. Well, we, Just wait for know, the invite, Rick. You what? Just waiting for the invite. Okay, we we, we got we we need to get something going for sure. Me and okay. Howard talk about it all the time. We're seem like we're always doing something else. Uh, you're busy. You're busy training dogs. I respect that. There's there's a lot. We trained uh, 900 pet dogs last year, so that's that's a lot. There you go, brother. <laughs> there you go. Living the dream. Every day, every day. All right. Well, Howard Young, that Howard, that was a great episode. Longtime friend, Tim Slattery. We had some technical difficulties along the way there. Hopefully, we get those ironed out. It's been a, it was a, it was a rough night, technically wise. It was. It's going to take some little bit of creative editing, but not much. I mean, you could tell that he is passionate about what he does, and you don't do this work for that long and not be passionate about it. Or I, I agree completely. Absolutely. All right, so what what are we what are we sipping this? We we are doing a repeat since I have such a limited supply of bourbons. So the repeat is a is a good repeat. It's Angel's Envy, which is very popular. A lot of people like Angel's Envy. It really is. Feels pretty good. And I'm drinking it neat for you tonight. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for not watering it down. I've been told that you're supposed to drink it the way you like it, but I'm drinking it the way you like it. So You drink bourbon the way you like it, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Howard, here's the hair of the dog that bit you. Yes. Thanks so much, you guys, for following along, supporting us, and listening to these wonderful conversations that Howard and I are just blessed to have each and every day. We'd like to thank and support all of our first responders, police, fire, EMS, and our military for once again holding the line, keeping us safe. Stay safe, brothers and sisters. We love you. God bless, and God bless America.